0: Well, if you uh, weren't with us last week, uh, Paul or sorry, Chad, reintroduced us to Paul's letter to the Philippians, and that's where we're going to be going back into today and spending the next couple weeks. And if you weren't around for that teach, I would highly recommend um, going onto the website and giving it a listen. It was such a wonderful introduction, and um, yeah, it's just really going to be kind of the base that we move off of uh, in these coming weeks and certainly sets a foundation for us today. So what we've seen from Paul so far is this incredible freedom and joy and this heart of thanksgiving that appears to just kind of be oozing out of him amidst some rather dire circumstances. And he shares with us that this has come through a journey of dying to himself, which is something that Jesus has asked of all of us who choose to follow him. So for Paul, the ultimate aim in life is to know Christ, to be made like Christ, to find his home within Christ, um, also, that others may also encounter him. And now, when I hear this aim, um, as I was re listening to Chad's sermon, I found myself just caught up in the beauty of that, of this incredible vision of being with Christ and knowing him um, so that others encounter him. And it just, it, yeah, it's this amazing uh, just aim and vision. And I'm like, yes, Lord, I'm on board. Like, I'm willing to die for that. Uh, this sounds fantastic but then all of a sudden my child is not napping again. It's like she knew I had to write a sermon this week or something um, and all the other stresses and pressures of life begin to build and all of a sudden my insides are like revolting against it and saying this isn't fair what's going on and you know, the actuality of that dying to self, I come face to face with it and it's not as easy and maybe as beautiful or glamorous as it looked like from the beginning. And so this is where Paul takes us today in this letter, a little deeper into the actual nitty-gritty of this, the actual working out of this dying to self. And it's where the Philippian church is kind of feeling this tension um, and where we also might be experiencing it in our own lives today. So because of who Christ is, a taking on of this Christ-likeness will always call us into relationship. It's within relational contexts that Christ-likeness really gets put to practice and put to the test. And so Paul writes here that if there is any comfort in Christ, any consolation from love, any partnership in the Spirit, any tender affection and sympathy, make my joy complete, be of the same mind, have the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So he tells the church she's to be of one mind, and now I want you to pay attention as we keep reading of what kind of mind this entails. Do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you not look to your own interests, but to the interest of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus." Now, I want you to notice here that though Paul is talking about the mind, he doesn't exactly address um, kind of a set of beliefs. And the word mind isn't a great translation for us here, given kind of our modern association with the mind being rationale and logic um, and, yeah, just very kind of more like a belief system. But Paul is tapping into a much more ancient understanding of the mind, which is kind of this big mixing up of the things that we've fractured out being our thoughts our feelings and our will and uh the word here in greek sorry again mark no uh no hebrew for me just greek <laughs> and uh so the greek word here is phroneo which is derived from the word frame which typically is translated as our understanding But the etymology of it is connected to kind of this deep, gutty um, sense of understanding. Uh, It is connected to kind of the midriff or the diaphragm, parts of our hearts, uh, our faculties of perceiving and judging. And so all that to say is what, when Paul uses the word mind here, it's more kind of this idea of be of the same intent, be of um, kind of the same disposition, have the same sense about you. So I want you to just grasp that it's, it's not just like a head thing, it's very much like an embodied thing that he's inviting them into. So in the disposition um, of Christ that Paul is trying to invite the Philippian church into is that of humility. So let the same disposition be in you that was of Christ Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. He emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, assuming human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this, this passage has often actually been referred to as the hymn of Christ in how it speaks about the character and the nature of God. And this is kind of our blueprint for what a humble disposition uh, is like and the type of disposition that Paul is encouraging the Philippians to take with one another. So humility has been this long-standing virtue within the Christian tradition. And one of the things I found interesting uh, as I looked into it this week is that it's actually considered a very uniquely Christian virtue. When you look at all kind of the pagan philosophies of antiquity, um, humility is not really talked about. It's not elevated, um, which kind of makes sense, right? Like... In a world that is usually concerned with power and esteem, humility doesn't exactly fit that. And so uh, it's also very interesting that within the Christian tradition, humility has often been viewed as the mother of all virtue which I find wonderfully ironic that um, this virtue that's supposed to be about lowliness is considered the highest <laughs> within the Christian tradition, um, which checks out with the rest of the gospel. So I think we're, we're on the right track there. Um, but I think that there's actually some truth in this idea because it was Jesus's posture of humility that enabled what God had put into place to actually come to pass. What God had laid out and put uh, before Jesus would not have happened if Jesus hadn't humbly submitted himself to that. Have you ever thought about that, of what the implications would be if Jesus hadn't humbled himself, if he hadn't uh, chosen to not hold on to some of his power or hold on to some of his form? We'd be looking at a very different gospel that I think would have very different implications in our lives. And so humility isn't this virtue that's just kind of a nicety that you might think is for some people, um, it's actually really crucial. And it's the virtue that um, yeah, allowed Christ to actually do what it is that God asked of him, what God uh, used him for. And I think that's really significant for us in our own lives. Again, I think for myself, there's uh, often, you know, I look at people that I'm like, oh, they're so humble. And I'm like, oh, that's nice that's beautiful, that'd be a great thing to have. But I was convicted in in this passage this week of realizing how crucial humility is. Um, And I think we see that in the gospel, that there's actually these long-standing implications that play out if humility wasn't um, wasn't present. So now also, just when I use the term virtue here, again, I don't want you to just think of kind of this good moral quality. but to take it as more of this kind of sanctified characteristic that moves us towards God, towards others, and out into the world. Another way to describe it might be as kind of a righteous disposition. And this isn't a righteousness that comes from us, but comes from God. It's in partnership with him. It's a grace of God through the work of Christ, along with the Holy Spirit. So it's not just something that we have to kind of push through and try and take on ourselves, but it's something that God is actively at work shaping within us. Uh, I also came across this beautiful quote quote from St. Augustine, which, Heather, you can throw up there now. And it just says, the way to Christ is first through humility, secondly, through humility, third, through humility. So if that doesn't sum it up for you, (laughs) then I don't know what else does. So I think we're starting to grasp the significance of humility. Um, And so I want to go back to our passage now, and re-examine the context that Paul brings this up in. So once again, do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility, regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you not look to your own interests, but to the interest of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Have you ever thought about what makes humility so hard? If not, Paul states it pretty obvious right here. It's other people. <laughs> I mean, all jokes aside, um, others make it really hard for us to be humble. It's through other people that the work, of, uh, the muscle of humility actually has to get worked out. I love this little note on humility from an article I read earlier this week. and There should be another slide for that one, Heather. And it says, to be authentic, humility must be verified in relation to one's neighbor. It would be too easy to declare oneself small before God, but superior to one's neighbor. True humility is verified in the presence of others. And I think that's what Paul is trying to explain to the Philippian church. What enables a dying to self that produces the fruit which Paul exudes? A humble posture towards God and others, as profoundly embodied in the life of Christ. Where does that kind of humility get developed and worked out in relationship with one another? The rumbling that the Philippian church is experiencing with one another is revealing this area that still needs to be made holy within them. But why does community seem to make humility so hard? Why does it often drive us away from embracing such an important thing? I think it's because in community, we often become acutely aware of our fears and our desires, and it offers an environment where we can compare ourselves and determine our sense of worth based on our standing in relationship to others. Our brokenness begins to manifest itself and our insecurities make humility seem far too vulnerable and far too risky. We become afraid that if we don't look out for us, no one will. If I don't try and elevate myself, no one will see me. If I don't try and prove myself, no one will love me. If I don't uh, try and build my reputation, no one will take me seriously. If I humble myself and let go of my own interests, how do I know that those interests will be met? How can I be assured that I will be known, loved, seen, or have purpose? How do I know I will be someone who matters to the world, who matters to God? The potential of losing all these things feels far too risky, and humility appears to be far too costly. But I want to go back into our text again and see what was given to Jesus in his emptying, in his process of um, taking on humility. This is in verses uh, 7 to 11. So Jesus, having emptied himself, taking human form, humble and obedient to the point of death, to the point of death, Jesus was given a name. And not just any name, a name that was above every name. And it goes on um, at the end, and it, um, Paul says again, and that this is for the glory of God. I want you to sit with that for a minute. Jesus was given a name. Doesn't the idea of a name um, embody so much of what we're afraid to lose? And I want you to catch here that Jesus didn't make a name for himself. He was given a name through his humble obedience. And the name he was given was unto the glory of God. Now, this is the first time I've kind of read through this passage and actually been so struck by this idea of being given a name. But the more time I spent in it, the more significant it felt in light of this call to humility. Is it not our desire for a name that often stifles our quest for humility? God may be at work in us, and we feel this lure towards being humble in character, but then the fear of insignificance begins to tell us not to let our guard down too much. What will happen to my name if I don't fight back? What will happen to my name if I don't try and prove myself? What will happen to my name or my family's name if I don't chase after? Fill in the blank. The name we wish to hold is probably unique to each of us, but I have a feeling that it's likely connected back to either some desire to um, be safe, to belong, or to matter. Now, we're obviously not going to be given the name Jesus, um, Jesus Christ. That one's been taken, Um, and it will not be a name that is above every other name. But let's remember in this context that Paul is inviting the Philippians to take on likeness, so to take on this form of identity, and to let the spirit of Christ come and transform every part of their being. In that, I don't think it's too it line to say that, I, that Christ will actually come and also give us a name. A name that is for the glory of God. And scripture is riddled with um, stories of both giving and changing names. And perhaps this is on my mind uh, since we as a church have just gone through this name change. And um, I was thinking about it how even as um, someone who's on parish council... We didn't sit down and go, okay, so what do we want to be known for? What's our aspiration as a church? Who do we think we should be? Um, Therefore, what should we be called? Instead, we asked God who we are. We asked what sort of identity God had been shaping in us. Um, We asked how he was leading us and where he has us now. And in seeking to humbly acknowledge who we are, we followed the Spirit's lead to name us within God's kingdom to put language to the identity that he had chosen for us as a church. It was this really beautiful journey, and um, I was so grateful for the experience of it, and it was so incredible to actually watch that happen and to truly see the Lord lead in that naming process. So I want to ask you, is there a name that you've been pursuing or protecting for yourself that feels like it's yielding little fruit? Is there perhaps a name that God has been wanting to give you and one that will be for his glory? Do you know it? Do you trust it? Are you willing to humbly accept the roles and responsibilities that come along with that? Are you willing to hold it even if he's the only one who marvels at it? Remembering that Christ's own name was intended for God's glory, keeping in mind that God the Father promises good things for his children and a home and a role within his kingdom. It was in humility that Christ was given a name. In humility the pos- is humility the posture that you've been seeking, yours. I think this is important because as we talk about this idea of emptying ourselves, um, we need to be reminded that the emptying is for a filling, for Christ to come and fill. So this isn't just some arbitrary hazing to see if we're committed enough. Um, It's so that Christ can come dwell and bring life and bring resurrection within us. And humility is the thing that enables this work to take place in an embodied manner. And I believe it will result in many of the fears and desires around our name being met by Christ himself. So now back into our final section of the passage. Paul says, so my beloved, which I love that because I feel like you just hear his pastoral heart and Paul is so aware how hard this is. Just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it was God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So there's three key moments that I want to touch on just quickly here. Um, as we wrap up. So the first being work out your salvation. This is not um, mean for you to figure out or to make your own salvation happen. Christ has already done that uh, through his death and resurrection, and we've already been delivered from the consequences of our sin. But to work out, or in other translations it says work on, is an invitation to do your part in letting the reality of your salvation have its full effect within you. This is where the process of sanctification um, comes into play. It's this act of making or declaring something holy, the process of being freed from sin, of being purified. So Paul's invitation here is to engage this process, for it will ultimately yield the fruit that um, we admire in Paul's life. Our salvation becomes a reality in a moment, but sanctification is a journey step by step, with the Holy Spirit, seeking to embody the new reality that we've taken on more and more. So this, And this journey is strongly aided by, you guessed it, a little bit of humility. Paul suggests this be done in fear and trembling, which is one of those sound bites that people love to misuse both inside and outside the church. And it sounds really scary and kind of off-putting, but I want to mention just a few biblical stories where fear and trembling are also present. One being Abraham receiving the Lord's covenant for his family that would bless the generations to come. Moses at the burning bush as he received the call to lead the Israelites out of slavery into the promised land. The shepherds, uh, when the angel the Lord came and, told them more, came and gave them word that the long-awaited Messiah had in fact been born. Uh, when Peter, James, and John were on the mountaintop with Jesus and they watched him get transfigured right before him. All of these moments also note a fear and trembling. And what I want you to see in these is that in these moments, God was profoundly close and was in the process of doing something absolutely extraordinary. In this situation, there is both this reverence and awareness of God's presence. And I think, once again, that that's what Paul is getting at. Um, One of the way that, um, yeah, this kind of term uh, fear and trembling is summarized. It's, uh, it's a term used to describe a little bit of an anxiety of one who tr- distrusts their ability completely to meet all the requirements, but religiously does their utmost to fill their duty. And so, again, in that you see there's, there's this humility of recognizing I actually can't fulfill the requirements before me, but there's also a willingness to say I will bring what I have. And so once again, in this theme of posture, that is what Paul is inviting the Philippians into, is to take on this posture. So work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Do your utmost to have the reality of your salvation take its full effect within you with due reverence and in the presence of God. What is doing this utmost? It's embracing humility. So, next movement, and I promise these ones will be shorter. <laughs> um, uh, but it's so the next movement is for it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work. In light of this conversation, um, being a bit more about instruction and us kind of participating, Paul is also giving counsel that um, it's important to remember that it is God who is doing this work. Uh, this isn't just a project self, God has already done this part. And again, in um, us making the decision to yield to Christ, he comes in and he begins to work. He's the one who has the ability to transform our will and to guide our work towards his purposes. This is a partnership, yes, but before we get too caught up in that, we need to remember that God is already at work. He's enabling, he's changing, and all I can say is thanks be to God. And finally, finally, Once again, this is all for his good pleasure, for the glory of God, not an elevated self as the end goal, but the glory of God, that Christ might be exalted in my body, that Christ might be exalted in my mind. So as we wrap up today, um, I found this uh, beautiful litany um, written by a Catholic bishop in the early 20th century. And I was struck by how well it names both the desires and the fears that often keep us from embracing humility. So I'm going to read it as sort of a closing prayer for us. And the lines are going to be up on the screen. And um, I encourage you in this time, you can either follow along or if you want to just sit and kind of receive the words as, um, as I read them. And maybe you feel prompted by one of the verses that, um, yeah, it just, it kind of hits you of like, yes, Lord, this is an area that I'm struggling um, in letting you uh, transform within me. Um, maybe you'd be willing to just offer that before the Lord this morning. So as I read this, I pray that you be able to interact with the words in humble reverence in the presence of God, in full assurance that the work of salvation is already being enacted within you, and that any emptying of yourself will be a filling of Christ. And I pray that any of the fear or misguided desires not keep you from taking on a humble mind of Christ and from experiencing the fruit of it for the glory of God. So the litany of humility. O Jesus, meek and humble of heart, hear me. From the desire of being esteemed, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being loved, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being extolled, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being honored, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being praised, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being preferred to others, deliver me, Jesus from the desire of being consulted, deliver me, Jesus, from the desire of being approved, deliver me, Jesus, from the fear of being humiliated deliver me, Jesus, from the fear of being despised deliver me, Jesus, from the fear of suffering rebukes deliver me, Jesus, from the fear of being forgotten deliver me, Jesus, From the fear of being ridiculed, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being wronged, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being suspected, deliver me, Jesus. That others may be loved more than I. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That others may be esteemed more than I. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it that in the opinion of the world, others may increase and I may decrease. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it, that others may be chosen and I set aside. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it, that others may be praised and I unnoticed. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it, that others may be preferred to me in everything. Jesus grant me the grace to desire it, that others may become holier than I, provided that I become as holy as I should. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. Amen.